Programming Throwdown, episode 47. Ruby, take it away, Jason. Hey, everybody. Uh, we have a cool episode coming up on Ruby. We also have a lot of interesting uh, questions and feedback and a lot of mail. Actually, the mail has gone up by, what, maybe a factor of like five or something? A lot. Um, uh, yeah, factor of a lot. There's a lot of, of a new lot. people out here. We don't know where you came from, but welcome. Actually, you know, okay, yeah, if you guys just shoot us a email or post on facebook or g plus tell us where you found uh if you're if you're new to the show let us know where you came from because <laughs> we we got a ton of people uh uh in the show very recently uh, at least based on the emails and our very loose uh hand wavy statistics and so um yeah let us know we're curious so cool so uh one of the emails we got is from uh yaroslav pikorsky pisk Piskorsky, sorry if I messed that up, but uh, so he's, I don't know if he's a statistician, but he knows a lot more about statistics than Patrick and I do combined, and uh, <laughs> he added a lot of information on R. Um, one of the things about R that we didn't know is that the R, the syntax in R, and for people who don't know, R was the language we covered last month. Episode so, 46. That's right. So the C, uh, the, the syntax of R is almost identical to um, the syntax in statistics textbooks. So you can, you know, open up a statistics textbook, take some equations from that, uh, you know, and almost type them verbatim in R, um, which is pretty cool. Um, also, you know, he, he uh, mentions a lot of things R does. Um, there's, you know, a lot of the things, there's overlap there with uh, MATLAB and with uh, uh, you know, NumPy and SciPy. Um, but they're worth mentioning. They're interesting. And so um, definitely go to programmingthrowdown.com. Uh, uh, check out our blog and go to the R episode. He has a, a ton of information there. If you're into R um, and you're a statistician especially. Did he post it in a comment? Or you, did you post up his comment? He posted it in a comment. Oh, okay. Um, actually, we can, we'll link to his comment from this show. Ooh, that's meta. Yeah, yeah, look out. That's like a... Yeah, it's like uh, uh, Inception or something. So, yeah, that's pretty cool. Definitely check it out. A lot of interesting stuff. Um, another question we got, this is from Ash Booth. And he was saying, uh, basically, what's the difference between kind of doing projects in school and uh, working in industry? Um, wow, like, where do we begin, right? <laughs> There's um, no difference. <laughs> yeah, right. So, I mean, I'll say a couple of things. Um, when you're, most of the projects that you do in school are individual. And so, depending on the scope of the project, if you're doing like a PhD dissertation that takes four years, um, then you probably have some kind of source control and, and things like that. Um, but even still, like, if you're developing by yourself or with, you know, one or two other people, you don't really have to document, you don't have to write a lot of tests. Um, because hopefully both of you or the three of you have all most of the same assumptions uh, and, and the code doesn't have to, uh, you know, doesn't have to live for a very long time. Um, and so definitely when you're working in industry, you have to program very defensively because there's a lot of people on the team. 
There's people on other teams who could break your code. And sometimes you write tests to make sure that other people can't break your code. Um, so, so that's something to think about is, um, actually someone put this really good in a really clever way. They said, if you're an industry, um, you know, your code has to be peer reviewed. So presumably one or two people have to look at your code. So right off the bat, your code has been read, you know, three times more than it's been written. It's been written once and read three times and that's before it even gets committed. Right. And after that, it's just going to get read even more. And so, um, you coding in that environment is very different than, than coding in school. Yep. That, you pretty much summarized what I would say, but yeah, I think the big difference between school and industry is your projects tend to be very short lived and you tend to almost never use existing code. So you tend to almost what we call, I guess, green fields, like code where you're starting from scratch. Yep. Versus an industry on the whole, you're very rarely doing that. And even at some point, even if you started that way after, you know, six months of working on something, it's no longer that way. And so you have a lot more maintenance, a lot more digging into code bases you're unfamiliar with or have been unmaintained. Uh, and that's something that you don't really get experience with in school, at least not in my schooling. They never gave us like a huge code base and said, here, go fix something or add a new feature. Uh, the closest we got was for our operating systems class, we needed to add a feature to the BSD kernel. Oh, that's and, cool. Yeah, so we had to actually dig through and understand it at some level to be able to add it. And that was pretty representative of the work that you end up doing a lot. Also, for me, I didn't do graduate work. So I got a master's degree, but uh, you know, it was mostly just normal classes. I didn't do any research. And so for me the projects also tend to be much, much smaller, and I didn't work on them eight hours a day for literally months, years. Yep. Yeah, which can be very that. common at work. Like, yeah, I mean, you could work the same job for 10 years, and you could literally be staring at the same code, uh, you know, 40 hours a week for 10 years. <laughs> so, I mean, I mean, hopefully, you know, it's you don't have to co keep coming back to that code, but, but you'll be building on top of that for, for years to come, so... Or if not you, someone else will, right? So, And then you said about peer review as a reason for writing it well or whatever. But I mean, that's something else that's really big difference. And many places have some form of peer review or needing unit tests even. And this is something I never did other than theoretically in school. You may have to write unit tests for the unit test portion of some class, but it wasn't something we did for realsies. Yep. yep. But in work, I do it for realsies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, like I said, if I don't write... I mean, this has happened to me where I don't write a unit test and then another team uh, that's that we're sharing the code base uh, just breaks my code. And it's not that they're jerks or anything. It's just that they invalidated some of the assumptions I made. And without unit tests, um, there was no way for them to know they did that, right? Um, cool. So our last question, uh, Quang Nguyen asked... Um, basically, what are our thoughts on uh, programming competitions? So Patrick and I have both done programming competitions. Um, one thing I can say, it's... So the situation's like this. Programming competition, in terms of, of your time, right? Like, I spent... Uh, I don't know. Um, I spent maybe two or 3,000 hours um, working on programming competitions. Like, either practicing... Doing comp going to competitions, 
doing online competitions. I mean, it's been like probably more than 3000 hours. Um, if I had spent that much time doing work on open source projects or modifying the BSD kernel or something like that, it would have made me a better software engineer, right? But the coding competitions make you a better interviewee. And, and uh, so both are, you know, you could argue about whether the interview process is broken because of that. A lot of people say that. And uh, I, I don't disagree. I don't really know what we could do better. But, but the fact is, at least right now, uh, you know, coding competitions will, will allow you to pass interviews that you would not have otherwise passed. Um, but, you know, again, taking that same time and putting it into working with a big team, you know, using source control and things like that would, would make you a better engineer. So, um, so yeah, use that information however it best suits you. <laughs> hey, I don't remember the exact question, so I don't know if we're answering it or not. But on that topic, it is uh, true that I think there are two aspects to coding competitions. One is doing stuff at speed. So like making a stab or guess or, you know, uh, doing the big order approximation, big O approximation of a potential thing and understanding what the impact of that will be off the cuff, um, thinking of an algorithm and implementing it sort of correct at least the first time. Like these things at speed are really great for working on a, a programming interview. Mm -hmm. The second part is like the algorithms, like actually learning various algorithms and tricks and data structures and understanding like, you know, when you're in grade school and they give you those word problems and you have to learn that certain words mean addition, certain words subtraction, certain multiplication, like learning those keywords, like how to take a guess at what the data structure might be. Um, I think those are two different parts. And the algorithms part has some usefulness outside, like learning what all these algorithms are and when to apply them and how to apply them. Uh, it's more generally useful long term. The coding at speed is really good up into a certain point, and then the diminishing curve kicks in really hard. Right, right. Uh, so, like, once you can do it fast and you're familiar with all the standard libraries of the language you choose to use, and you can sort of get done in, in the time frames that the competitions normally have, getting much faster will make you do better in the competition, but not in real life. Right, that makes sense. Even yeah. for a programming interview. I don't think it really matters. You don't have to have super speed. You just have to be quick, but not fast. Yeah, so maybe so maybe the best advice here is, especially for people in college and and things like that, is is uh you know, to be like decent at, you know, top coder and these other sites, but you don't have to be great. Maybe that's Yeah, I would think like the way I would view it, so to use top coder specifically, is I think it's valuable to get to the point where be honest with yourself like on the easier there's like an easier mode and a harder mode or right. easier level and a hard level is like on the easier level you really should be solving the easy one correct the first time the easiest question the middle question you should be getting right in the time frame and you should often get the hard one right uh and all of that within the time frame that they set for you so you can do like practice competition or whatever yeah but it I, isn't important i don't know that you about get that. It the absolute <laughs> fastest well what? i don't know about you but i i so for me to do one of the hard ones, it, it takes me about a full day. <laughs> on, on the easy one. Oh, you're talking about the division, the easy division. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, right, right. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, Sorry, yeah. yeah, yeah. So I think the hard division gets into competitiveness. 
So you should be able to do the easy one, but the easy one on the hard one is typically oh, that's so confusing. The level two easy yeah. one is typically the level one medium one. Yeah, just to recap, so there's two divisions in Top Coder. <laughs> I'm confusing there's di- people. <laughs> there's division two, which is uh, think of it like the minor leagues, and division oh, I two has has it's fine. Division two has easy, medium, and hard, and they typically, although not always, but they typically take the hard division two problem and make it the easy division one problem. And then now there's another medium and hard in division one. I don't know too much about division two, but in division one, the I've never gotten a hard problem right in the 90 minutes that they give you. Um, and I've only gotten hard problems right. I mean, this, the smallest, the lowest time has been something like five hours for me to get a hard problem right. So there's definitely a, the, no, the, but I'm saying I don't. I would go further. So, but you actually did. Oh, so I did competition too, but you did a lot more than me. But I. That's what I was saying. Like I don't actually think division one is necessary at all. Right. I think you need I to, be able to do division two in the time frames they give you, as like a, are you doing well enough? Yep. I think, and we talked. I about think that's this, sufficient. We talked about this in our earlier episode, but one of the one of the things, you know, kind of going back against what I said earlier, playing I guess devil's advocate against myself. Well, one of the things that 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 programming competitions do give you is an ability to look at problems and kind of eyeball how difficult they are. Yeah, that's um, what I was trying to say. Maybe I said it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like like you see, like 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 in, an approximate estimate, like just a swag at it. Like, yep. ah, this is really easy. Like a top coder, it's explicit. Like you just see this problem, and it it might. Like, there's that's not true problem. because sometimes like the hard one and the medium one are similar in difficulty. Oh, that's true. That's true. And it's that's better to do the hard mistake. one first. Yeah. Well, in div two, that might be. Yeah, in div one, the hard one's almost always impossible. <laughs> like to do in ninety minutes, it's like always some math or statistics trick, and you've either memorized all the tricks. The people I know who get the hard ones right um, are people who have just memorized a ton of number theory tricks and theorems and they just see it and they know okay that's this theorem let me start coding and for the rest of us plebeians it's like impossible um but but yeah to to patrick's point i mean you can look at a certain problem and say you know your boss can come to you and say okay we need to get this you know access time down to 10 milliseconds is there some kind of caching or something we could do and you could look at that and say um yeah that's that's doable or you know, that's going to take years and, and it might not even happen, right? So, um, like, uh, you know, like we could like write some function to do that or there's a bunch of heuristics we need to, you know, do data science and, and, and figure out if we can, you know, uh, if there's some trick in the data or something, right? So, so yeah, anyways, that's sort of long-winded answer. The answer is yes, they help, but... Uh, only to a point. Yeah, only to a certain extent. But that's true of most things in life. That's right. It's it's uh it's actually an uncanny valley. If you are in the top maybe fifty people in the world on Top Coder, then now you're like kind of pseudo famous, and that's great. Um, if you're anywhere between there and like the bottom fifty percentile, it doesn't matter. <laughs> and then and then anything from there to maybe the bottom one percentile is better than nothing. <laughs> so, anyways, your mileage may vary. Yep. Although okay. I found that a lot of the nasty tricks I learned in coding competition helped me be really fast at debugging code on the fly. Like just hacking print statements in or whatever is necessary in in a loop to just 
get something out. And you learn, like, how to make the compiler be quiet. And just, like, how do I force with the minimal lines of code to get it to do what I want? Yeah, that's a good point. I think that... Uh... And you would never code that way. Like, I would never check in code that way. But when I'm writing test code or debugging something, like, I, people always look at me and like, what? You can do that? It's like, sure, you can cast this thing that way. You shouldn't, but you can. Yep, yep. Yeah, I think that uh, there's... It's sort of like those people who work, who actually worked in a newspaper, who have to produce a newspaper every week. They just have a ton of tricks that if you just wanted to write an article yourself, like they could just, they could write it 10 times faster. And it's because they were put in a position where they had to write an article in 30 minutes and they just figured out how to get it done. And it's usually things that go against your intuition that you would think are kind of bad, but they really work. And it's the same with coding. There's just like hideous things that, that never make it into the final product, but are stepping stones to being very efficient. Yeah. Okay. All right. Cool. Time for the news. News. So first news article is something we talked about on uh, last I month's show. Been, yeah, last. Yeah. But, uh, but uh, it's, uh, this is a very, this article goes into a lot of detail on it. Uh, the title of the article is Amazon's 23... Point seven million dollar book about flies, <laughs> and uh, uh, basically this guy is a uh, I think a biologist or ethnologist. I don't know he studies insects, and uh, um, he wanted to buy this book. Uh, you know the book typically retails for around forty dollars, and these two sites they each had it for three hundred dollars, and he said that's kind of ridiculous, and. Uh, he went to send the link to somebody else. And by the time he sent it to them, the book was worth on like $400. And then that really kind of got his attention. So sure enough, uh, after a month or so, the book was worth 24, you know, $23.5 million. And it's just a $40 book. And, and at, at the very end, it ends up being worth like $40 again. But this is all about sort of, he actually deconstructed um, the well, so he found they were increasing by a set factor. Right. So, like, one was under, one was over. Like, one was trying to be the cheapest by some margin, but only a little margin. And the other was trying to be slightly more expensive than that one. Yep. Yeah, and so it just had this race condition. Well, it's race condition is not the right word. But yeah, it was had, like yeah. an unstable equilibrium. So, yeah. so, yeah, one of them increases the price 20%. The other one increases the price 19%. And then the first one, you know, sees that increase and increases the price twenty percent. It just keeps going until a book, you know, forty dollar book is worth twenty million. Yeah, and, and then uh, eventually someone realizes it's crazy and just manually resets the price lower. Yep. Yeah, they must have humans in the loop that look at, you know, everything that's retailing for more than twenty million and do something <laughs> manual. <laughs> I mean, so, yeah. I was trying to think yeah. if there's a way to exploit this behavior, but I don't think there. I mean, you could make people's prices be driven up, but it doesn't really matter. They just won't sell the book. Well, I, I thought about this, right? What if you, what if you lie to Amazon and say you have the book for a dollar? Wouldn't that make them lower the price? Yes, except then if someone buys it in that time period. That's right. Yeah, you have to. Th that's the problem, right? You have to say I have the book for a dollar, hoping that there aren't that many people buying books on flies. Um. But then maybe they would buy your book. Now you're kind of in trouble. Like the, the people yeah. who are selling the $23 million book would buy your book. And there now, might be people out there 
which I would not be surprised, but I've never heard of it, who are like watching for, like they historically track books with enough, like this one's probably rare enough where they don't, but books with enough volume or just anything with enough volume. And they look for used price discrepancies. And if it's a big enough discrepancy, they buy it. Right. And then, yep. you know, essentially try to sell it back. Like there are people on eBay that do that, search for misspellings of words. Yep. yep. So like, th- or certain like, old objects that people don't know what they are. So they say like, oh, I found this weird bottle opener and it turns out it's not a bottle opener. It's an antique surgical instrument. (laughs) Right. But if you search like weird iron bottle opener, you find (laughs) these really rare collectible, you know, whatever. Yeah, yeah, totally. So, so yeah, I think the answer is yes, you could take advantage of it, but you will probably get in trouble and get yourself in a sticky situation. So, yeah, they do. Um, especially if it's about flies. <laughs> so yeah. don't buy books about flies. That's the moral of that story. <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, so the next article is a regex1.com, which is an interactive tutorial for learning regular expressions online. So Jason actually found this link, this article, and I find that this is going to be awesome. I am going to try this tomorrow because I stink at regular expressions. I'm a big fan of the quote, what is it? Uh, if there's a problem and you solve it with regular expressions, congratulations, you now have two problems. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, so this is actually a user, uh, a listener uh, request. So Nicholas Barron, uh, uh, yeah, sent an email saying, hey, can you talk about regular expressions? And so this is for you, Nicholas. We're talking about regular expressions. Um, I'm also in the same boat as Patrick here where every time I need to use regex, I always have to fudge my way through it online. And I get it wrong nine times, and then tenth time, it finally does what I want. Um, and it's it's uh, it's one of these things. Like I think it'd be good for me to just bite the bullet and like dive into regex for a, a week, and then and then get to the point where I could just write the regex correct the first time. So yeah, I'll also be trying this website. Right. Um, yeah, the next one is interesting. Things I was unprepared for as a lead developer. So. Uh, you know, most teams, the way they're structured um, is you, you have your team and you have a manager who typically manages, you know, maybe, I don't know, 10 or 15 people. And then you have a tech lead who is in charge of maybe, you know, two or three people. And, and the tech lead typically also, you know, writes code himself versus the manager typically just manages. Um, so uh, this person uh, moved from a established company to a startup. Um, at the startup, he was lead developer. And uh, this is just sort of like a, a, uh, a monologue, um, sort of like a diary about his experiences as lead developer, uh, specifically things he didn't expect. And I, and I thought this was really fascinating. Um, so it's definitely worth reading. I won't spoil it, but... <laughs> oh, no, go ahead, no. Uh, well, yeah, I'll spoil it. So, so uh, the one that really stuck out to me was, you know, as as lead developer, you obviously you're in the trenches, and so you spend a lot of time with the developers. Um, but at the same time, you're given sort of a more high level vision. And so, in his case, you know, he's at this startup, and so he's learning things like, you know, if this product isn't successful or if it has severe bugs then they're going to shut down the startup. And so the people that he's managing, like all of them are just going to be out of a job. And then one of his employees comes to him and asks him if he can, you know, learn Ruby on the side. 
and and he wants to do that but in the back of mind he's thinking like dude our startup's gonna die in a month if we don't get this done and you're asking me if you want to learn ruby on the side and but you know again his job as the lead developer is to insulate his team so that they don't have to worry about the startup going under or whatever right so so he so part of that is 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 answering that question rationally um you know pretending like he doesn't feel all this other gravity and then saying you know yeah go ahead and learn ruby it's not a big impact on the team or no you can't learn ruby right now not you know what are you doing the whole company's gonna die right so so i think that sort of in a nutshell is a lot of his issues is sort of walking this sort of double double life leading this double life so it's definitely interesting highly recommend reading it so the next article i have is actually not that important sounds weird anyways it's about <laughs> jet the jet brains uh developers of ides uh and they changed their licensing or originally changed their licensing and changed it back and they changed their mind anyways I, I want to use this as an opportunity to rant about why everything is going to web-based subscription licenses. So okay. JetBrains originally announced this. So before you could buy, you know, a license to the software for a flat fee, then they were going to, now you need to pay a monthly subscription in order to have your software. And if you stop paying it, you don't own it anymore. And the companies tend to think this is good for you as an individual, but in all the cases I tend to look at it, it seems bad to me. So the problem is they're collecting subscription fees, which is great. And as far as that, like if I stop use, if I only want to use it once in a while, I can pay a subscription fee and then stop using it and stop paying, which is nice. And it sounds cheaper up front. But then the fact that like long term, I don't own it. And if I stop paying, I lose it uh, is it's not great for me. And also, right. if there's new versions of a software release, the company needs to, imp they don't constantly improve the version I have because they're not really incentivized to. So that's kind of bad. But they're really incentivized to make it awesome for the next one or I don't pay again. Um, and when you go to a subscription model, it's a little loosey-goosey to me as to far as like why would they continue to give updates at an awesome rate because you're paying to use it you really like it you need to keep using it and it's not like if you stop paying you just stop getting new features you lose access right yeah i mean so a couple of things about this one uh BitTorrent sync which i had as a tool to show a while ago they had a subscription model for the pro version and i never bought it because um is there something about subscription models it's sort of like i think it's a psychological thing but you, you just actually, I'll get to that later because I can, there's there's a whole separate rant about that. But but uh, but um, they switched to a one-time purchase model. I think it's just fifty bucks now, and I bought it immediately. So I mean, they went from not getting anything from me and me doing everything I could to use the free version and get the most out of it to like them just immediately getting fifty bucks. Um, I see the other side of it though, which is they're basically never going to get money from me again. So, so that but is who kind cares? Of the because, like, for BitTorrent Sync, they don't have a maintenance cost. So, why should they continue to get money from you? Um, that's that's true. Yeah. So, so presumably now they should use all of these fifty dollar investments to build another product that they or can not. sell. Or not? Who cares? Well, they have to keep their company going, right? Presumably. Sure. I mean, if they want to, right? But they could just make a product and be done. Like that's okay too. 
Um, yeah, maybe. I mean, you I, would like them to keep it updated, right? And they want to continue to make sales. It probably is worth it to them to keep it maintained because then people will keep buying the existing version at least. Right. But what I'm saying is like for people that run a service or a server and there's cost to it, I understand, right? Like you have costs to keep this thing up. I have to pay you because you have to pay for me right. to continue using it. But for right. things like Photoshop or an IDE, right? It's I'm using all my own resources. All you're doing is keeping a license server up. Yeah, I mean, you're you you have to assume that they are spending a lot of money like improving the product. If they don't do that, then you're absolutely right. It's just you're throwing money away. But presumably your, you know, $10 a month or whatever it is goes to allows them to hire some engineers to work on it. Um but, but I guess costs yeah. aren't typically that drastically different, right? Like in the short term, theoretically, right? Because the if I pay you a hundred dollars once, and I buy your new software every year, or I pay you ten dollars every month, like it's roughly equivalent. Yeah, that's true. That's the, true. The big difference for me is just like if I stop paying, I can't keep. If I'm happy with what I have for now, I can't just continue to use it without paying. Right. But to be fair, there's a barrier of entry. Like if I try JetBrains and I don't like it, I can cancel, and I only paid one month. No, I but understand. If I have to, yeah, yeah. yeah, if I have to pay three hundred dollars, then I might just never try it. So yeah, they have to do some kind of shareware. But there's version a lot of yeah, like thirty day trials, right? Yeah, like, right. That's a common thing. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely with you. I mean, anything that's been a subscription. I'm trying to think of anything. Um, I can't honestly think of anything other than Netflix and Hulu that are, and those don't even really count. Those are more like utilities. Yeah, video and music. I do, but I don't right. really, I'd rather, I'm not sure if that's a great idea for me or not. Like I haven't, I'm not fully sold that it's I feel a great like idea. those are, those are basically like utilities. I mean, I mean the difference between, you know, say Spotify and JetBrains is that Spotify is, you know, presumably putting out new content all the time and you're paying for the content. Well, um, man, they're not responsible for getting the content, right? Like they're, they have to sign it, but like the artists and stuff are making the content. They just have to make sure to keep doing the deals. Right, right. And the deals cost money, hence the hence the subscription. Like but I guess the point yeah. is like if I like if I really like this IDE and I pay every and again, this this specific IDE is really kind of irrelevant. I don't use it, so maybe it's a bad thing to pick. No, but, no, I think um, it's good it's a good discussion. Is that like if I really like where it's at and I don't just particularly want to pay for it right now. Like I don't need to upgrade. I'm happy where it is and I just want to keep using it. I don't have that option. That's true. Yep. That's true. So like this is what I do for some Adobe products. Like I have Lightroom for my pictures, but I'm not on the newest one. I'm on like several versions ago. Yeah. I because, have the like, same thing with Illustrator. Like, I'm happy with what it is right now. Like I don't need to upgrade. Yeah. The, the whole Adobe creative cloud thing. I just can't deal with it. Like, like, uh, the idea that like, because this is a problem, is I don't use Illustrator often enough to make the monthly fee worth it. Like for for a product that I'm going to use once every four months, you know, I, I can't justify spending fifty dollars a month. It's ridiculous. But you could justify buying. I think it cost me like a hundred dollars when I bought it. Right. Yeah. But I've used it for yep. two or three years. Yep. Yeah. I bought Illustrator before the whole cloud thing. For, I think it was like $200 and the same thing I used it for I've been using it for I don't know six years or something Anyways. anyway so uh, the other thing last thing about that is uh, you know people think that 
So this is about the subscription thing. People think, oh, if I get this IDE, I'm going to be paying for it forever. Um, this goes to like a psychological thing. People generally feel like they don't change. I don't know if you read this article, but people feel like they change way less than they actually do. So they did this study. They surveyed a bunch of 20-year-olds and said, 10 years from now, will you like the same style of music that you do now? Oh. And the majority said yes. And then they interviewed a bunch of 30-year-olds and said, do you still like the same music you did 10 years ago? And it, almost 90% of them said no. And, and then they thought, okay, well, maybe 20-year-olds just don't get it, right? So they did the same thing with 30-year-olds, 40-year-olds, 50-year-olds, and every single generation did the same thing. Every generation felt like, even 60-year-olds felt like they wouldn't change when they were 70, and they changed. And mm -hmm. so... With respect to subscriptions, yeah, I always feel like I'm going to be paying for this forever. Uh, like BitTorrent Sync, I feel like, oh, I'm going to be paying, you know, $10 a month for the next 20 years, or maybe not that extreme, but but uh, when really, like, so, so, like, what you actually pay versus what you get for subscription versus one-time fee, um, your brain doesn't process that correctly. And so that makes subscriptions an even worse idea. Anyway, so <laughs> so time for book of the show. Oh, book of the show. Oh, show. So my book of the show is a Kickstarter um, project. So it hasn't materialized yet, although I'm eagerly waiting it. It's a remake of Wait, Paranoia. Can we still join or are you just teasing us with something we can't join? Good question. So I asked the person running the project if people could still join because the, the project has already been funded and it's over. Uh, from that perspective. But uh, he said yes. He said just email me uh, or, or message him through Kickstarter and uh, give him some information and uh, PayPal him 50 bucks and you can join. So, so basically, even though you can't join through Kickstarter, you can still uh, get the book. Um, so the book is uh, Paranoia RPG. It's specifically, it's a remake. So Paranoia RPG is a book that came out a long time ago. Um, it's a game book, uh, so it's kind of like Dungeons and Dragons, these other ones. Um, but this one, the catch is um, you're sitting around at this table playing with these other people. One of the person is a you know game master, so just like D&D. &D. But uh, each person has a secret mission, and the secret mission is always destructive. Like my secret mission might be get Patrick killed as many times as possible. Uh, Patrick's secret mission might be like fail this one part of the mission. And so um, the way the game works is instead of rolling dice, uh, well, you roll dice too, but in addition to rolling dice, every time you take an action, um, everybody passes a card to the game master. The, and most of the cards are empty. So you start off with a handful of cards. Maybe, you know, 20 of them are empty, but you have three of them that say automatically fail, whatever, whatever action you're doing right now. And you have three of them that say automatically succeed. And so... If Patrick is, you know, trying to turn on the shield generator and my mission is get Patrick killed as many times as possible and he's under fire from enemies, then I will pass my, you know, Patrick fails this roll card. Uh, but because everyone's passing a card, Patrick doesn't know what I did. He doesn't know it was me who did that, at least not right away. And so... Um, so, so that's kind of the whole point is like... But one thing is like if you fail the entire mission... 
then everybody loses. So it's sort of like you have to limp along through the mission, uh, just stabbing each other in the back as, as many times as possible without going overboard and, and losing the mission. So it really takes the whole D&D experience and makes it like it makes it really exciting. Like I played a little bit of D&D and I, I could never really get into it. But this I just absolutely loved. Um, and um, it's the thing is, it's, it's really dated, especially being sort of a sci fi theme book. It's, it's definitely showing its age. So this Kickstarter is is a way to rewrite it, you know, for a modern audience. And I'm really looking forward to it. My book was going to be Red Planet by Kim Stanley Robinson. That was the one I was terribly foreshadowing last time by saying I wasn't that into it. Turned out the book ended and I still wasn't that into it. <laughs> and so I've decided not to give you that as a recommendation. If you're interested in a really long form dry discussion of terraforming on Mars and economics of that and hey there's yeah. water there's water on Mars so we could do I, that now. Which is something this book talks about. Oh great. Um, and Elon Musk talking about uh, nuclear bombing Mars as a way to start kickstart terraforming is also something kind of they talk about in the book. <laughs> okay. So the book is, I mean, it's accurate and interesting in that regard. It's just, it's a pretty long book for that. Anyways, Got it. Um, so instead, I'm not finished with the book. I'm about halfway through it, but I'm in really enjoying it thus far. And that's uh, John Scalzi's relatively new book, Lock In. And uh, this book is about a near future where people get a flu or flu-like virus that alters their brain and makes them paralyzed. Oh. And kind of like there's a whole portion of society that becomes locked in where they can't move and they have to do everything kind of virtually or like through the use of like uh, Android robots. Oh, wow. So that's not spoiling. That's like literally like the first five pages of the book. No, yeah, yeah, I, so, yeah. That makes sense. That's so anyways, cool. That's really awesome. interesting and I'm actually listening to this book on audible and if you're interested in trying audible which a lot of people have been doing so great, great. send us in like what you uh are listening to with your audible free book and you can go to audibletrial.com slash programming throwdown all one word lowercase for programming throwdown so that's audibletrial.com slash programming throwdown you can get a free book and we get a little bit of something to help us keep the show running and you get a book for free that you get to keep, even if you cancel your subscription. I have one book a month that I get, uh, and I always find something awesome to listen to. They have tons and tons and tons of books, even if some of them are real like losers, like Red Planet, Red Mars. Yeah, I mean, you don't have I, if you to really pay like per it, book. interest it, but yeah, it's okay. Yeah, very cool. It was better than sitting listening to music again on my drive into work. <laughs> yeah, right. There's only to only so many chip tunes on Spotify. Hey, you listen to that channel too? <laughs> yeah, I love that channel. I, I what was the new one I got? It was something very strange. I'll have to think of what it was. Oh, okay. Ah, oh, well, it's like disco EDM or something. Really? Okay. Yeah, I was All like, right, oh, that sounds okay, cool. interesting. Yeah, yeah. Okay, time for tool of the show. T -t -t tool of the show. So my tool of the show, it's there's a pair of tools. What? Um, That's not fair. I know, totally cheating. The first is image magic. Now this is. Image Magic, uh, like the British version. So it's M-A-G-I-C-K, uh, Image Magic. Um, and it is a library for working with images. And uh, it has a billion different bindings 
Uh, I haven't checked, but I'm pretty sure Billion. there is a ruby binding. Let me check right now. Oh, yes, yes there is. There is R magic. Yes. So there's actually two. So, so yeah, there's image magic is ubiquitous. Just everyone uses image magic. If you're doing things with images, it's great. Um, also, FFmpeg. Um, it's, it's in the same vein as image magic for videos. Uh, despite the name, it does way more than MPEG. It does WMV, does AVI, does MP4, uh, which I said it's MPEG, but it, it does, it does everything. Um, and, uh, it's ubiquitous. It's bindings for every language. Um, so if you need to work with images or you need to work with video, um, you're going to be using image magic or FFmpeg and, uh, they're actually, they're just like brutally difficult to, you know, kind of compile yourself. And if you wanted to, like, I remember one time I spent just almost a month getting FFmpeg to even build on Windows. Um, hopefully a lot of that is better now. You can, yes, but, I've uh, done this. I have experience with FFmpeg. There's like a series, just like a zip of executables you can download. Yeah, that's right. So, so, so definitely, you know, they're huge monolithic projects. Uh, don't try and build it yourself if you don't have to. Um, fortunately, most people don't have to because there are just bindings for everything. So uh, check them out. They're great. I've used them for so many different projects. We had a thing recently where we were doing some machine learning on videos and um, we wanted to sort of put uh, uh, some instrumentation, just draw some instrumentation on the video, um, like annotate the video. And uh, we used FFmpeg to do that, and it it was it came out really nicely. Uh, the other thing, I, two things I use FFmpeg for are taking a video and converting it to stills, so like every frame to its own file. Mm -hmm. uh, and also, I took uh, it's really weird and cheesy, but whatever. I take a time lapse of putting up the Christmas tree each year, and I just take it with like my SLR camera because. This is what I'm used to now, although now I'll probably do it with my phone since they've added this feature. But okay. I typically take it as a whole bunch of still images, and then I use FFmpeg to smash them all into a video file. Yep, that makes sense. Uh, and it's just really super easy and straightforward. Much easier than like trying to open a whole bunch of high megapixel images in uh, you know, like a video editor or something. They tend to bog down. Yeah, I mean, that would be just brutally painful to, to do that. Because it's kind of silly, because... A 1080p video is what it like a mega no two megapixels per frame or whatever, but like an SLR uh, yeah. takes like eight megapixel or twelve megapixel images. So, yeah, yeah. Is it um, is it is it? Do you get better quality if you downsample a something with high optical quality? Does that does that? So I don't know. The videos for me turn out really good, and I which I've. I guess maybe I should try to figure out on my phone. The reason why I do it with my camera is I can put it in fully manual mode, which means the focus stays constant oh, and nice, the settings nice. stay constant. Yeah, right. And so then you don't get like weird effects like some frames being focus changing or when someone walks nearer or farther to the camera, they may go in or out of focus slightly, but at least the whole focus isn't shifting forward and back, which distorts the view slightly. Yeah, I mean, I guess, so if you have a camera that's taking a certain resolution, what that means are like photons are hitting these cells and the cell buckets have a certain size. So if you have a higher megapixel, assuming like the aperture size is the same, then you have more smaller buckets, but then you're just averaging those buckets when you downsample. 
I guess I don't know. I just don't know enough about optics to know. Like, if you take your SLR and downsample it versus just taking pictures with your iPhone, assuming there was some manual mode on your iPhone, I don't yeah. know which one's better. The other thing is, like, the you know, I typically take it over the course of, like, a long period of time or two long periods of time. And I find phones work great for when you just want to, like, take a short video. But, like, time lapses and stuff, you want to take a long one. I want to adjust the speed. I may want to s- speed up some parts and slow down others. And I've just never gotten in the knack of being able to do that on my phone. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Cool. All right. Very cool. My tool of the show is Personal Capital. Okay. I don't know if you were you were talking about no, you talked about something else on another show. I was thinking I talked I about Wealthfront, but I, I don't think I've ever okay. talked about this. So Personal Capital is a combination of Wealthfront and Mint. Ah. So um, I don't use they so they run both a robo advisor is what they call it, which is like a way for you to invest money with them and recommended ETFs at low rates or whatever. Okay, but I'm not interested in that part of what they do. But mm-hmm. they run also a service that's similar to Mint um, on top of Yodely, is it? Which is the API backend for connecting to financial services, um, which is not what Mint uses. Mint rolls their own. So the connectivity is actually a little better in personal capital than Mint. And Mint ah. is really good for like day-to-day spending. And kind of not so good, in my opinion, for like investment. So if you have any sort of like money in stocks or, a, you know, 401k or whatever, personal capital does a much better job of like explain, like tracking that. And it'll also give you like you are currently invested in too many bonds or too much cash or too much whatever. Right. According to like, you know, where you should be at your age based on some recommendation, which you may or may not agree with. But it does analysis that I find interesting to see. And helpful, um, and so, so I recommend so where do that they, this week. How does how does this company stay alive? Like, where do they make their money? Because they can recommend you services, right? Like, same thing as Mint. They're selling uh, at some it. level, which yes, you may or may not be comfortable with. Um, but for them, one thing is that they try to get you to, which I've not, I didn't feel like the push is very hard, or at least I haven't had it. But for using their, you know advisory fund thing in which they get some small percentage once you use a certain amount of money same thing as Wealthfront, right like after so many thousand dollars they get a percent yeah right right uh, not a whole percent but some fraction of a percent right right um, but the it doesn't look like these guys do the mint thing in the sense like they don't do they actually connect to your bank and stuff like that yeah mm-hmm. oh they do that okay yeah and your credit card like they connect to yep, your credit yep. card Mm-hmm. Okay, because it, it, from the front page, it sounds like it's all about just your investments, not really your day-to-day. No, it does both. But the, cool. so that's what I was saying, like, the day-to-day isn't as good, right? Like, Mint is better for that, in my opinion. Right, right. Um, but this is better for the investments, so it's yeah, worth using. And the, the other day-to-day, thing- you kind of have to, the, the day-to-day, you have to look at yourself anyways, right? Like, Mint could tell you some things, but really, you should just look at, your ex- your expenses and just say okay that that's a mistake or we need to cut down. Well, on I'm really like using Mint for having I have you know several credit cards or whatever for different purposes and like it will accumulate them all together for me. Wait, hold on a second. Why do you have several credit cards? So I have a high rewards. Card. This is so personal. Whatever. <laughs> I have a high like a rewards well, no, card because I've only ever had one credit card ever since I was like 16 years old. It's been the well, same. Well, so there's a couple card. good reasons. If you're, if you can control it, and are this is not this is so off topic for the podcast. Okay, <laughs> yeah, one. yeah. 
but anyways, basically like a rewards card, but it's an American Express, which isn't accepted everywhere. So then you need to have oh, a second one. Oh, got it. Okay, but in general, it. it's also good to make sure you could have a debit card and a credit card, but you should have at least two somethings in case, you know, one of them has a problem or, you know, gets used somewhere else and they have to lock your account, you know, temporarily. That's true. There have been a handful of times where um, my there's been an issue with my credit card and I, yeah, I had no backup. So that's a good point. It's good yes. Point. So it is good. Anyways. And sorry for that. I don't think personal capital works for all of our listeners who aren't in the U.S. And all those people who may be like, what? I would like a job. And now you're talking about how to invest money. But, yeah. One day well, we can all aspire that we have enough money to invest and worry about. So I mean, one thing everyone can agree on is that uh, they wish they had done better. Like, they'd known more about this when they started because that's when it matters the most. And yes, that's when you know the it is least. Absolutely. And that's where I feel like I'm at. And that's why I guess I try to... Be, you see those graphs of like every dollar you invest when you're under 30 is worth, you know, hundreds of dollars you invest when you're 50. Right, right. I so. actually didn't, I didn't, the first two or three years, I didn't max out my 401k just because I didn't really understand what it meant or anything. Um, so yeah, don't do that, kids. If you if you can, max out your 401k. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so let's talk about Ruby. You sound like a really old guy now. Like, <laughs> yeah, young whippersnappers. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it wasn't that long ago, guys. I'm not that old. But but, uh, but, uh, uh, but yeah, there was a couple of years. I've been working. If you in tuned industry. in, this is a programming podcast. We <laughs> promise. I've been in industry, what, 11 years. And the, and the first two or three years, I didn't max my 401k. So don't do that. Um, how long have you been in industry? And then we'll talk about Ruby. I'm just eight? curious. I think I'm at eight years. Okay, maybe I'm not at 11 then. Maybe I'm at 10. I don't know. Anyway. But I, I did it right after undergrad. I started working because I did my master's degree while I was working. Okay, got it. Got it. Yep, anyways. Okay. Cool. So, so off topic. <laughs> so Ruby. Um, so I, I, I have a quote. I want to read this quote. Okay, go for this it. This is related to sort of like background for Ruby. And this is by the inventor, designer, creator the head honcho guy for Ruby, Matsumoto, probably saying it wrong. He's Japanese. That's where Ruby comes from. And here's this mm -hmm. quote. I really like this. I hope to see Ruby help every programmer in the world to be productive and to enjoy programming and to be happy. That is the primary purpose of the Ruby language. That's awesome. He wants us to be happy. Yeah, I mean, it's way better than Fortran, which wanted missile simulation <laughs> to be more accurate. Ruby, they want you to be happy. I like that. I like that. I thought that was nice. It's very prophetic. Um, Wait, well, cool. well, I don't know about it. But anyway, yeah. So anyways, um, that's some background. So to give you the direction Ruby is coming from, it it's supposed to be a happy and productive environment. Yeah, that makes sense. I do think there's a lot of, and this I promise this is the last rant, but there's a lot of connection between being happy and being productive. Uh, and like... A lot of people say, oh, I really want my kids to be happy or my spouse to be happy. And it's actually kind of hard to make somebody happy. But you could definitely make someone productive or at least not make. But you could definitely you could, it's much easier to give people like advice and direction that makes them more productive. And if that leads to happiness, then there's a much easier way to make people happy than to try to make them happy directly. Anyway. Uh, OK, <laughs> so. uh yeah, so Ruby is, uh, people don't know, who have never seen Ruby or know anything about Ruby. Uh, it's similar to Python. You know, they're both interpreted. Would you say that's its closest competitor? I would say Python is definitely, 
the closest competitor. What was the other one you said? Oh, no, I was going to say. I was just rephrasing, like, closest competitor. I think Python is probably more popular than Ruby, so. Yeah, I think they're they're popular and different. Like, Ruby's more popular for web. Um, like, Python has Django, which is, you know, similar to Ruby on Rails, but, you know, not anywhere near as popular. Um, and when it comes to, like, scientific stuff, Python is just, just way, way more popular. So um, they both have their sort of niches, um, but they're both interpreted. Um, Ruby is actually number five in the Redmonk programming language rankings, which is pretty cool. Um, these guys, they take um, uh, the number of comments on Stack Overflow and the number of GitHub projects um, and kind of throw it all together in some algorithm and then spit out the top 21 languages. Um, and Python was number four, and Ruby was actually tied for number five with C++ and C Sharp. I don't really know how you can be tied when they wow, take Wow, that's actually pretty good. So many things. But yeah, Ruby is definitely up there. Um, so it's a popular language. It's, it's a good one to know about. Uh, um, and but programming language number eight is CSS. I don't know. What? What's wrong with that? There's a uh, lot of CSS out there. <laughs> no, I, yeah, yeah, no, I'm going to, never mind. Let's just move on. <laughs> okay. I mean, yeah, so. There Ruby, is a lot of CSS out there. That was not where I was going to go. You're thinking CSS is more like content than, I, than yeah. a but language? Yeah, but I'm going to, I know if I look up, is CSS Turing complete? The answer is going to be yes. Of course, of course. But yeah, but, but uh, I, I think to your point, there's a lot of CSS that is just describing things. That's really not source code. It's really output, right? I mean, it, in fact, it, it literally can be output because there's um, less and SAS and other programming languages that compile to CSS. And in fact, not that many professional developers write CSS, like raw CSS anymore. It's sort of like saying, oh, the most popular programming language is machine language. Um, but anyway, so... One of the things that made R R Ruby so popular is Ruby on Rails, which uh, is a sort of model view controller uh, web framework uh, written in Ruby. And so I'll kind of talk about that briefly. So uh, MVC framework, uh, model view controller framework, has sort of three components. Um, there's the model. The model is usually um, usually starts out auto-generated. Um, uh, this is called a object relational model or ORM. And so this is, you can actually do something in Ruby on Rails called scaffolding and say, uh, you know, writing some very small uh, metadata file, which just says things as simple as like, I have a person and a person has an age and a person has a list of phone numbers. And you write in this very um, compact DSL. And then from that, it turns into an entire database um, and also a bunch of code to do primitive things with that database. Like if I want to fetch a person or write a person, things like that. Um, so the model is, a lot of it is auto-generated. Um, you may want to do, you know, more specific things than that. You may want to say, get all the people that have updated their profile in the past day. Um, so that's not going to be auto-generated for you. You'll have to write that. Um, that would be part of the model. Um, the view is um, all just HTML and templates. So the idea is, you know, view might be something like, um, you know, open tag, header, close tag, 
hello and then in brackets person name close brackets and then um the controller uh which is a third piece it's responsible for uh filling in all those brackets like it's responsible for knowing what you know person name means uh and it uses the 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 functions you wrote in the model to go and fetch people and then and then tell the view um you know this is this is the information you need um so I don't know if Ruby on Rails was the first MVC framework, but it's definitely the most popular by far. There's a ton of uh, tutorials and other references, which we can, we'll talk about at the end. Um, and it also, it's pretty cool that with the scaffolding, it actually supports different databases, which is pretty awesome. You can actually uh, prototype your website using SQLite. You're just running on your machine without any, any database service. And then, you know, copy your Ruby on Rails uh, you know, project over to your server, which is running MySQL, and run the exact same um, code on that on that server, and it just magically works. It's pretty cool. Magically, magically, it's uh, the magic of scaffolding. So, uh, Ruby on Rails is totally awesome. Uh, it, it might be a bit dated now. I don't know how well it's maintained. I haven't. I definitely don't hear about it as much as I used to. Um, but uh, it's. I've used it for a few projects. It's phenomenal. Um, I think also it got promoted to Ruby on Rails was really pushed a lot by the um, oh why is why did the name just forty three uh, oh why did the name just escape me oh no brain meltdown oh well um, one of the things that Ruby I think is popular because of is also it supports a lot of different ways of programming so I, Python also has this as an advantage like you can do scripting in Python or you can write object oriented stuff in Python. Yep. Um, and Ruby has a similar thing where it really does support lots of different ways. It just doesn't try to tries to get out of your way and allow you to do lots of stuff in a very flexible manner, so that you can write the write in Ruby different codes for different problem. Oh, different coding styles for different problems. Yeah, and this is one place where Ruby does better than Python. Like in Python, a class is handled in a really goofy way. I mean, basically, a class is just a collection of functions. And I mean, I'm not going to get this right because it's very nuanced. But, but under the hood in Python, you know, a a class is just it's just like kind of an afterthought. And it was kind of hacked on there. But in Ruby, uh, you know, classes are totally kind of their own entity, and they're handled in a much more elegant way. Um, yeah. Another thing with with Ruby is you could do really uh, elegant metaprogramming. So in other words, if you have <clears throat> if you have a um, if you have a class and the class is a list of methods and you want to get, you know, the method names of the class with so actual function names, uh, you know, you can do that pretty easily. Like you can enumerate all of the methods for a given object and things like that. Um, you know, you could do this in Python. Uh, any object has a dot, uh, underscore, underscore, dict, underscore, underscore object or, or property. And using that property, you can fetch, you know, you can do metaprogramming in Python, but it's it's definitely as I said before, it's definitely kind of an afterthought or, or, or some hacky thing that, you know, probably wasn't intended in the beginning to be a big part of Python. Uh, but in Ruby, that's kind of like a first class citizen uh, in the sense like they kind of thought about that from the beginning. Um, and that's one of the reasons why Ruby is so good for domain specific languages. Um, Which we did have a request to talk about and we will in the future. 
Yep. Yeah, definitely. We but should briefly, do... it's like yeah. a new language you define, but you're not trying to do everything. Like you're not really writing a whole language. Well, you are, but you're not writing a language to do everything, not a general purpose language, a very domain specific, something for a specific niche, a specific application. Um, so like scripting an AI in a video game, right? Like you may want to have a configuration language for doing that that actually gets executed, but it doesn't need to necessarily be Turing complete or does it need to be a from, it may look a lot like Ruby um, and Ruby supports that really well. It has a lot of them because of this really good meta programming reflection introspection. Yep. I mean, you might want a DSL that's very specific so that you can make a lot of assumptions um, about the DSL. Like, for example, in Ruby on Rails, there's a DSL for defining your model. And uh, they make a lot of assumptions. And based on those assumptions, they can do, they can turn your model into, you know, SQL commands. Uh, they can't just turn generic Ruby code into SQL commands. That that would be too hard. So, so the DSL tightens the assumptions on the language and, and because of that lets you do really cool things. Um, one of the cons about Ruby, uh, it's, it's, again, it's a double-edged sword here, so, so take con with a grain of salt, but it's, it's dynamically typed and it's interpreted. And so what that means is um, if you spell something wrong, you know, variable name wrong, uh, if you change a function to uh, you know, accept a string instead of a number and you didn't change all the places that use that function, uh, you're not going to find out about that until you run the code. Um, so if, you know, if you're talking about, say, Homebrew, which is, uh, you know, the, the, the um, Mac package manager that's written in Ruby, where you just, like, hit some command and then after, you know, a minute it's done, that doesn't really matter. It's like now you found out about the bug after 50 seconds instead of, you know, two seconds or something. So it's not that big a deal. But if, if you're building a website, there might be bugs that you don't find out about for a month and then they just start crashing and you don't know why. And uh, there's a really interesting Stack Overflow question about why Twitter uh, switched from Ruby to Scala. And uh, the short answer is, is, is just that. Like they, they ran into too many problems where everything looks good and then at two in the morning, some code path gets executed that, that hadn't been before and things just start crashing. And so with Scala, you know, if someone fat fingers a variable and spells it wrong, or if they change a function without letting everybody know, uh, you know, Scala just tells you right away before you deploy that code. So are they still using Scala? I don't actually uh, know. I know they were, yeah. I know they were using it for, trying to use it for a fair amount of stuff before, but are they using it for everything? Are they still doing um, Good question. So I used to talk to a lot of people at Twitter. A lot of those people now aren't at Twitter anymore. So it's hard for me to really know. Uh, you know, definitely as of a year ago, or as of two years ago, they were definitely using Scala for almost everything. I heard, actually, so I did hear uh, sort of friend of a friend kind of thing. So, so take oh, this dear. with a grain of salt. But I did hear that they were moving away from Scala. Um, I don't know why, but uh, uh, maybe there's performance issues or something. I don't know. I, I do know Scala <laughs> takes a very long time to compile. Um, so I don't know if that was why. But okay. uh, yeah, I, I'm sure there's still a ton of code there written in Scala. So. Also, Ruby just really never got adoption in 
scientific uses, which is something Python got like huge adoption for use. Yep. So there's a lot of really good examples and libraries for doing scientific computation, high precision math, that kind of stuff in Python. And it just like I'm sure you, there's no reason you couldn't do it in Ruby, but you're just not going to be going down the path of least resistance as far as having other people have already done it. Yep. Yeah, I mean, if you're going to do something scientific, just uh, write a Python web service and and have Ruby call it. <laughs> I mean, don't try and do uh, scientific stuff in Ruby. It's just going to be painful. Um, so just just for people who don't know, like a lot of these scientific like matrix optimization, or matrix, you know, operations and things like that, they really have to be done in C or, or even Fortran. And and so Python just has a bunch of bindings to those languages. And and really the cool part about NumPy, SciPy, these libraries are all of the C code that you don't have to write. Um, so so you know f you can't just take you know the the scientific libraries in Python and port them to Ruby. It won't be that easy. Um, so yeah, that's that's definitely one area that's that's uh, that that wouldn't be fun to do in Ruby. <laughs> so and you don't have to. You could you could definitely use both of these languages together. Yep. Um, a great learning resource, which I think both Jason and I did. I never finished it, but I did do a fair amount of it. Was the yeah, Rails I also didn't zombies. finish, but I did about uh, terrible half of people. It. All these MOOCs, <laughs> which I guess is not exactly a MOOC, but sort of similar. Railsforzombies.org. Um, mm -hmm. And this is an interactive online uh, tutorial, which is one of the very first ones I saw done like this. Now I see them all the time, but yep. the very first ones I remember distinctly saying was this one uh, and it takes you through all of the kind of steps of bringing up a ruby on rails website and it has a kind of funny theme with zombies and it, it's just it was a fun time and it's also educational for what would a ruby on what is developing a ruby on rails app look like yeah i, I also did about half of it i thought it was great um definitely check yeah, this why out. didn't you finish no, i'm just kidding. i'm just teasing i'm just teasing no, I mean, I'm, I mean, I'm thinking about it. I don't really it's a know. It's pot calling the kettle black. <laughs> Actually, okay, I know why I didn't finish. I remember. It's because I got halfway through and I learned as much as I needed to know to build the site. And then I just started doing real work. That, that's what happened. So it's actually, I would say it, it was a win for them. Like, like they, they got me to the point where I could, I was productive. So. Nice. Yeah, so definitely check it out. If you want to be productive in Rails, uh, you have uh, uh, two people here who, who, who took this class and then, and, then, and then did some cool Rails stuff. So, uh, yeah, check it out. Well, thanks for listening. Yeah, um, just a couple of meta things. Oh, first, let's, let's recap for people who skipped to the end. Uh, yeah. uh, book of the show. Probably a good yeah. idea. There was a lot of ranting this episode. <laughs> yeah, book of the show is Paranoia RPG. Uh, and Patrick's lock-in uh, tool of the show. I did Image Magic, FFmpeg, and Patrick did Personal Capital. Um, so, yeah, so one thing uh, we've had, uh, we're still like kind of dealing with some hosting provider issues and things like that. Um, we changed hosting providers, and uh, uh, some people uh, in Russia... I got an email from someone in Russia who can't access it because the hosting provider is banned in Russia. I have no idea why. Um, I'm pretty sure it has nothing to do with us. Because of uh, all those nasty things we said about the Russian <laughs> yeah. government. No, we did not say anything bad about the Russian government. 
Yeah, all those like Vladimir Putin jokes we've been making. Stop. So, so, <laughs> I don't know. So I'm sure it has something to do more with the domain, uh, the high, the top level domain, and nothing to do with programming throwdown. But nonetheless, we're banned in Russia, which is kind of cool. Uh, yeah, go us. Um, I am going to host the uh, podcast like an alternate place on S3. Um, I did a lot of research into RSS. There's actually no way in the RSS feed for me to specify two sites. Um, no one ever thought of that as a as a reasonable use case. So so I actually cannot, you know, fix the iTunes or the RSS or any of that. Uh, the best I can do is provide, um, you know, just a download link on www.programmingthrowdown.com. So that's uh, what I'll do. Um, if you can't access the podcast and you're not in Russia, let us know. Because so, as far as I know, Russia is the only country in which we're banned. But uh, there could be others. So if uh, um, if your buddy's telling you what a great episode and and uh, you can't listen to it, um, your buddy should let us know. <laughs> your buddy should just send you the file. Yeah, and let us know. <laughs> so um, yeah, but basically you can go to the website. I'm going to have alternate download links. Uh, uh, as soon as possible. So, all right. Well, I think that's a wrap. Cool. All right, guys. Have a good one, and keep sending us those emails. They're awesome. Uh, you know, thanks for all of your support on Patreon. Actually, the Patreon is growing. Um, let me see what it's at. The Patreon is at twenty-two dollars an episode. So, thank you, guys. Oh, nice. Thanks, that is guys. awesome. Uh, thanks for supporting us on Patreon. We really appreciate that. Um, that's awesome. And uh, thanks for checking out the books uh, that we recommend and all that good stuff. Send us lots of email. Um, thanks for Yaroslav, uh, Ash Booth, and Quang Nguyen for the questions uh, and, and comments. And uh, we'll catch you guys next month. The intro music is AXO by Binar Pilot. Programming Throwdown is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 2.0 license. You're free to share, copy, distribute, transmit the work, to remix, adapt the work, but you must provide uh, attribution uh, to uh, Patrick and I and uh, share alike in kind.